All right, let's look at this passage. Chapter 7 of Romans and uh, the first six verses. Now, this is the last chapter for me uh, to preach through. You know, I did this peculiar thing. I preached the last chapters first, uh, 15 and 16, and then I did uh, 13 and 14, and then did chapter 12, and then, <laughs> then I did uh, chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, and did chapter 8, backwards. And then I started at chapter 1, and I've done these 62 chapters, 62 sermons on... Uh, on these uh, uh, first uh, six chapters. So I've just got chapter 7, and God will have been pleased to give me the privilege of, uh, for the second time in my life, of going through the letter to the Romans. I didn't look at my notes for 40 years ago. And uh, we've gone through it uh, together. And this is a lovely chapter. It's the most, one of the most helpful chapters that have ever been written, and it's far less complicated than... Uh, it might seem to you in hearing me read it to you. So let's, we look tonight at the first six verses. Don't you know, brothers, from speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. If her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So who was this uh, chapter written to? Um, was it written to the whole of the population of, of Rome, or the religious people of Rome particularly, or um, the pagans as well? Well, it's obviously written to people who were converted to faith in Jesus Christ, to, to Christians. And there are a couple of reasons we can be sure of that from the context. First of all, he addresses them, Paul addresses them as brothers. In other words, People like you and me, who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the family of God, aren't we? We say, our Father. We are his children. Uh, we're in the household of faith. Paul's my brother, and you are my brethren. And then again, uh, this chapter occurs in a section of the letter that is dealing with the subject of Sanctification, you know these words now, don't you? About uh, changing those who have already become Christians, who have been justified. They put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and they've run away from all else and they're looking to him and their hopes are all in, in Jesus Christ. And now they are being changed. They're being made holy men. God is transforming them in their daily lives. 
So you'd be pretty sure that this chapter then sat right here in the section of the letter that deals with the making holy, the sanctifying of uh, justified believers, that it would be then addressing Christians. What's the theme of the passage before us? Well, um, it's very simple. In verse 1, Paul gives us a statement of principle. And then in verse 2 and 3, Paul illustrates that principle. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, he applies that principle to us, especially with regard to our relation to the law. So, verse 1 is the principle, verses 2 and 3 is the illustration, and verses 4, 5, and 6 is the application. So, it's quite easy to grasp, then, what Paul is going to say to us in these six verses. Firstly, he gives us the principle in verse 1. I'll scale it down to a few words. He says, now, um, you're my brothers, and we are familiar in the family of faith with the law of God, especially... uh, those of us who were converted Jews, he could add, that the law is an abiding law, and it's an immovable law. The law has jurisdiction over people as long as that person lives. Yes? Yes, yes, of course. Yes, we agree. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship idols. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Um, Such moral principles are abiding Forever. There never come a time when it's right to worship an idol of stone or to bow down before a totem pole. So what is Paul getting at? Well, Paul's principle is simply this. He's telling us that you're under the law as long as you live from your first breath to your last breath. And all mankind is under the creator's law. And our conscience bears witness to the perfections of the law. It has permanent jurisdiction over us all. So when it's violated, it condemns us. When we've not loved God with all our hearts, when we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we are guilty. As God sees us and knows what we've done and looks at our hearts, we're lawbreakers. So, possessing the law is not the solution to our problems, our struggles, our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. In fact, the law becomes a part of the problem. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because when it measures our lives, it finds us guilty. Let me put it like this. The law is not... uh, the, the star player, the Gareth Bale, the Gareth Edwards, the man we give the ball to or we pass to when we're being beaten and we need a score. You know, in rugby, when the chips are down and the time is ticking off the clock, that there's somebody on the team, you want them to get the, the, the ball, somebody with a sidestep, somebody who can uh, um, kick... Um, The apostle is saying, when the chips are down and the seconds are ticking off the clock and salvation is in the balance, the law is not the one who's going to get you the victory. That's what he's saying. That is not where you set your hopes. 
It's not where you go for triumph. If you are under the law, as long as you live, you are not only under the wise precepts of the law, how beautiful those precepts are, but you are under the condemnation of the law when you break it. So Paul sets out in the opening verse with the non-negotiable nature of the law of God. You're under the law, he says, as long as you live. In other words, the law then is, is not the solution. Actually, it's part of your problem because of two things. You've already violated it, and there's never going to be a time in the future when it gets easier, when it gets quieter when it doesn't clamor as much for you to obey it, when it's less demanding. So the apostle is making it clear that there's no deliverance, no rescue, no way of escape for sinners by considering God's rule book. Moses' two tablets of stone are not the way back to a restored relationship with the righteous Father. That's the wrong mountain for us to look at. Mount Sinai. Then he steps back and he says, let me make this as as vivid as I can. Let me illustrate it with a relationship that you all know very well, because you all come from homes and you've observed your mother and father. And that's the second thing then that we see in this chapter. Paul gives us, secondly, the comparison of marriage, verses 2 and 3. Uh, for example, he says, so here's an example to make this precept clear. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. We all know that marriage involves a huge personal commitment. In fact, you could say that in marriage, you are making five personal commitments, major commitments, A personal commitment, I, Meyer, take you, Alwyn. An unconditional commitment, for better or for worse. An exclusive commitment, forsaking all others, having thee only unto me. A lifelong commitment, as long as we both shall live. A fruitful commitment, the children God may give us. When you take these five commitments and bring them over into the spiritual realm, then you say, ah, this is a wonderful picture of what coming to Christ entails. That it's a commitment that is personal, unconditional, exclusive, lifelong, and fruitful. So when I ask the bride then, who stands on this side, and I ask her uh, questions concerning the vows then that she's going to make she, she doesn't maybe she doesn't say that or I'll see she doesn't say that she says I do you come to Jesus and you don't come bargaining you've got you've lost every right to defend yourself 
you don't lay down conditions for him taking you on board as his saved child. There are no negotiations. You come unconditionally. You come to him. You come to God alone. And you come pledging your life to serve him henceforth. You come expecting that your life's going to be different after you are joined to him in union. It all fits. That's why the Bible then often talks about marriage and unfaithfulness. In the book of Hosea, Ephesians 5, to illustrate spiritual truth. So when they've got some difficult truth to uh, explain, they, they, they go for marriage. And they tell us, you, you see, this is the union between Christ and his church. Marriage. It's the preeminent example of what is a living relationship with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is what is happening here in Romans 7, 1 to 6. He uses the marriage relationship, especially the truth surrounding marriage, remarriage, to illustrate, well, the power of this person, this extraordinary person, Jesus Christ, how he can change your values and your thinking and your destiny and your affections and your mind and your very thoughts. He changes the human heart. So we could say then this text is saying to us that coming to Jesus Christ is like getting married all over again. In fact, it's like leaving a very bad marriage, a very difficult marriage, um, to marrying the best possible husband you could ever have. Now, Paul isn't giving here the, the, the theology or the ethic of marriage. In order to understand the full biblical teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage, you have to go to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, Ephesians 5 and some other passages. You know that there are two grounds for divorce and remarriage in the Bible. Sexual sin and the unbeliever abandoning the believing spouse. But Paul isn't thinking about that. And you mustn't beat yourself up by what he says here. Because that's not his consideration. He wants to say one important thing to us. He wants to say, marriage is for life. That's tremendously important, isn't it? Any other commitment is not a Christian commitment. In other words, you don't go into marriage and, well, yeah, I'll marry her, and if it doesn't work out, we'll get a divorce. You, you never think about marriage like that. That if uh, things get bad, there's a back door. You don't think there's no back door for the Christian as he enters marriage. And it can lead to a, a, a breakup of the marriage. Um, the only way then for two Christians to go into a marriage is to think divorce is not an option for us. 
we're getting married for life. That's, that's the way that, that every Christian ought to enter marriage. All right? Then also you know this, and then we'll move, we're moving a little bit on now from that. Death cancels all contracts. Don't you know, brothers, this is how he starts. For I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. That is, until death, not after. And that, again, is not difficult to understand. It's fascinating. Let me say you've hired a man to be your photographer in your wedding, and if he dies before the wedding day, then don't expect him to turn up with his camera. Once he's dead, his obligation to you has ended. Someone else will have to take the photograph. So if you've asked a taxi driver to drive you to the station to get the early morning London train, if he dies that night, he won't be there in the morning. His work is done the moment he dies. Or supposing a policeman in a car chase is pursuing a stolen car. You see these extraordinary films uh, from the helicopter uh, of cars and and police cars chasing them and... uh, If a car thief hits a tree and kills himself, then the case for the robbery of that car is is closed. The policeman doesn't come and speaks through the window to the corpse and says, uh, and reads him his rights. Um, Anything you say may be taken down and used in evidence against you, and you will be provided with uh, um, a solicitor, a lawyer at at the police station. He doesn't say anything. The case is closed. Man is dead. The law has nothing against him now. He's dead. You can't make a dead man do anything. You can't make him pay you back the £10,000 that he owes you because he's dead. Dead men don't pay off their debts. So Paul is laying down a principle here then that remarriage is permitted after the death of the spouse. He no longer exists. You can't see him. You can't talk to him. You can't call him. He can't sign any papers. And uh, his wife is not buried with him. She is not expected then to, be, to throw herself onto the funeral pyre on which her husband's body is to be burned. That's Hinduism. That is not Christianity. So God's law states a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. If her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She's not an adulteress if she marries another man. So there's a number of statements that are being made here. A wife is bound by law to stay married as long as her husband is alive. If her husband dies, she's no longer married to him. If she remarries, she marries Bill and then she remarries Ted, and she marries Jack, and marries Fred. While her husband is alive, she's a polygamist and an adulteress. But if she marries one man after her husband's death, she's not an adulteress. So the principle is remarriage is not permitted while the husband is alive. Remarriage is permitted after the husband is dead. A man and a woman get married, and they intend to spend their lives together. But he dies. And she's no longer married. She's a widow. And she's free to remarry if she chooses. But if she walks out on him, she fancies a guy she's met at work. 
she goes off with him, moves in with him. And she's an adulteress. I am saying to you that these words are not the full biblical teaching on marriage and divorce. But there's one clear principle that Paul is bringing out, and the principle he's bringing out is death cancels all contracts. In this case, death cancels the marriage contract. And most wedding vows then, and I take it, I have the phrase, till death us do part, or as long as we both shall live. I say phrases like that, because marriage ends the moment one person dies. So um, I'll marry a couple, and I'll say, Oshan, do you take Gwenan, whose hand you hold now to be your lawful wedded wife? Do you promise before God and these witnesses that you will love and honor and cherish her, and forsaking all others, have her only to yourself to be a true and faithful husband, as long as you both shall live? And he says, I do. Or as I was in a wedding recently, and he said, I certainly do. Oh, he says, uh, when I heard one of you in your wedding last year saying, by God's grace, I do. And that was nice. So that's the Christian approach to marriage. When you get married, it's for life. But our text is pointing out that remarriage is permitted after the death of the spouse, precisely because marriage is for life. Once your spouse is dead... You're free before God to marry again if you so choose. Right, if you so choose. Ah, there's a great what if then hovering around tonight, isn't there? What if, what if my spouse died? What would I do if I found myself single again? Would I get married again? Or would I decide that once was enough? Or that I couldn't be happier with anyone else or that I show how much I loved being married by marrying again you know it happens doesn't it your wife uh, coyly asks you Kariad, uh, if I died would you marry again and I'll tell you men what the answer to that question is you say to her We'll talk about it when it happens. The third thing that we see here in in this illustration of remarriage after death, uh, there are two things. We have died, then, to the demands that the law makes over us. And we Christians are married now to Christ. We're joined to him. We're in union with him now. That's what a Christian is. So Paul's point now, if you're coming with me down through this passage now to the application, is not simply that we've traded husbands, we've traded partners, that we've got a new spouse, Jesus Christ, for our old spouse, the law. His real point is this, we have traded a bad marriage. For a good marriage. When we were under the law, we were in a relationship with a law that was horrible. 
Being married to Mr. Law was like being married to the most demanding husband the world has ever seen. Nothing you did could please him. There were rules, and only rules, from sunup to sundown. In the kitchen, in the parlor, in the bedroom, in the house, in the garden, in the car. Do this, do that. Don't wear that. Don't go out there. Nothing was ever good enough. Nothing was ever clean enough or tidy enough or tasty enough. Even the temperature in the rooms was not what he liked. You worked hard to buy and cook a delicious meal, but because it wasn't perfect, he didn't like it. You iron his shirts, he found a wrinkle in the collar. He got mad with you. You lost weight to make him happy, but when you gained part of it back, he's on your case day and night. He wakes up every morning with a list of things you need to do that day. And no matter how hard you work, you can never complete the list to his satisfaction. He's picky, he's demanding, he's a perfectionist, he's critical, and on top of that, he's right all the time, and he knows it, and he doesn't mind telling you about it. That is what it is like to be married to Mr. Law. You know, God's law is perfect. It's perfect all the time. You do your best to keep the Ten Commandments, but nobody's perfect. But the law demands absolute righteousness. The law knows nothing of mercy. The law knows nothing of pity. The law knows nothing of of compassion. Do this, and you shall live, the law says. It's not enough to keep most of the commandments most of the time. That will condemn you. That can never, never save you. The point is that uh, living under the law is like living with a perfect husband. You end up broken and discouraged and frustrated, and you feel like a failure all the time. You could never be good enough, no matter how much you try, being married to Mr. Law. But now, Paul says, the Christian has died once and for all to the law. What happened to the car thief being pursued by the cop, hitting a tree and dying, has happened to you. You died. And so, none of the Ten Commandments has anything to say to you by way of condemning you. You no longer exist. You are six feet under. You are unreachable. But most of all there is this, that the condemnation for you breaking God's law was visited upon the Lord Jesus. On the cross. You were joined to him. And the judgment that fell upon him was for all your law breaking, all your sins. In your place condemned he stood for all your failures. And in your place, he obeyed all that the law required. He did it. He fulfilled all righteousness for all his people. He did it as a man, but he did it as the God-man. And so his righteousness then is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. Immeasurably glorious and enduring. So Christ has secured 
you are discharged. So your marriage to Mr. Law is over because death ends all contracts. You've died to the law, and now you are married to the Lord. From being married to Mr. Law, you are now married to Mr. Jesus Christ the Lord. So you traded in your husband, who was a demanding son of a gun, for one who was just as straight, just as honest, just as righteous and perfect as your first husband, but oh, he is merciful also. He is loving. He's always forgiving. He's always encouraging. He's always accepting. He's much more to give you than your first husband. He's got everything that that first man didn't have. And the amazing thing is, also, he's perfect. He's the son of God. But he never makes you feel bad because of your lack of perfection. Except if you become stubborn and indifferent. He takes you just the way you are and he yokes you to him so that you work together. You're a partnership. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And he turns you, changes you into a better person and a sweeter person. Before you came to Christ, you were in a losing relationship to the law. But now you are, through Christ, in a winning relationship to the demands of God. The law made you a loser. It, In fact, it aroused frustration and sinful passions within you. He said, you all them do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that, incessantly. And in the end, you did the exact opposite. He said, don't, 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 don't. And finally, in your frustration, through the sinful passions that were aroused by the law, You said, I'm not taking this anymore. And you went ahead and you defied the law of God. And then, oh dear, there was bitter fruit from what you did. It was a catch-22 situation. It was a no-win situation. You were frustrated under the law and you were guilty and ashamed when you broke the law. You were dying a little bit every day. So verse 5, that's what Paul is saying. I've just explained to you verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. By nature, we instinctively just rebelled against a constant diet of rules and regulations. You understand that, don't you? You understand how the rules seem to create that kind of response. Um, Science says wet paint. It's not wet. You say, you touched it. It said don't touch. The highway code says 40 miles an hour and you go 42 just to prove that you can do it even with speed cameras on you. Your parents say be home at 11 and you walk through the front door at 8 minutes past 11, just late enough to send a message, I am 16 now, but not too late to have a big row. 
The law draws lines. The law sets limits. But the natural man, he wants to push, doesn't he? He just wants to push that line, move the line, and marginally go over the line just so, to see how far he can go and get away with it. Even when we don't cross the line, we, we go as near to the line as we can because there's something inside all of us, rebels. The power of the flesh is there inside us. How far we can provoke our fathers and mothers. How awkward we can, we can be. We challenge the law instead of keeping it. But now you're married to Jesus. And oh, he makes a lot of difference. You, you, because you love him and uh, he's there to help you, you, you have a new desire to do what's right. His laws don't seem a burden to you. You too have become one. And he's living his life through you. And the places in your life that were once marked as just barren, areas and actions of failure are now scenes of little victories just just little victories that you were patient you didn't answer back you you weren't provoked by constant questioning and so on you you kept sweet the lord jesus helps you to love your neighbor as yourself when your neighbor is is difficult. When your children are very awkward. When your spouse is hard to live with. Becoming a Christian is really a tremendous progress in your life. You belong now to the loving son of God. Okay, let's say you meet an old friend. You haven't seen these friends for many years. And you go to their severed and, and there she is. And so you talk and you have a cup of coffee together she hardly recognizes you. She says to you, you've changed. You're looking so well. How is it with your husband these days? Things better? Ah, you say, you haven't heard. Um, my husband died a, a few years ago. And I've remarried. Now I, I've got a wonderful husband. And then as your conversation continues and you have another Kit Kat together and a cup of coffee... You tell her about him, how he helps you in the home. and You yoke together. And the burden of housekeeping is easier and doesn't remind you of your failures, doesn't criticize you all the time. He's always encouraging. He's always supporting. God has been so good to you in bringing this man into your life. Demanding husbands make unhappy wives. A man who puts his wife on performance level is expecting her to do things constantly to win his approval but this woman has been won by a husband who loves her he loves her just the way she is I'm saying that is like us now being joined by faith and and trust to Jesus Christ. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am meek and lowly of heart. He says. It's like having a best friend. 
your tenderest companion. It's like moving from one marriage to another, from being married to the law to being married to the Lord. It's going from death to life and defeat to victory, from being criticized to being forgiven, from being alienated to being accepted, from feeling a failure to feeling, I can do all things, I can cope through Christ who strengthens me, from guilt to being a more than conqueror, from being married to Mr. Lord to being married to Mr. Love. So Paul is saying here, you see, in this section, you know, you, have you learned now that you can't be saved by a rule book? You can't be at peace and contented by being reminded constantly of the law of God. You can't be sanctified by the law. What the law does is stir the mud at the bottom of a pool and prove how foul the waters are. So Paul is saying by this analogy of marriage, you you can't get a happy marriage by some prenuptial agreement about what you've got to do, how you spend your your days and your weeks and... um, how you spend your money and what you buy. A marriage based on law is a marriage that's like living in a court of justice. A marriage based on love is like living in a happy home, a community of affection. And any blessed marriage has to be grounded on love. Okay, you know what love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails, 1 Corinthians 13. So what I'm asking you to do tonight, like every night, is to be married to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to do. I want you to be joined to him. This lovable Savior is here tonight, and he'll take you on board. He'll be your husband, your best friend. And... This is what he says. I, Jesus, take you, sinner, to become a member of my forever family. I do promise to love and keep and protect you forever and ever and take you to heaven when you die. That's what Jesus is saying to you tonight. And then you respond and you make your promise to serve him to the end. I, sinner, take thee, Jesus Christ, to be my lamb and my saviour my teacher, my Lord, my eternal companion, I trust thee to protect me and work all things together for my good and supply all my needs and forgive all my sins. And I promise I'll be loyal to thee for the rest of my life. And I go to heaven to be with thee and see thee when I die. And that's what a Christian says. That's a Christian response. That's 
becoming a Christian. It's a fruitful life. That's the ambition that the Christian has at the end of verse 4, that we might bear fruit to God. You've entered a very fruitful relationship. And these are the offspring. There's fruit. Um, The qualities of life that come. Uh, Moral qualities that come from having this union with Jesus Christ. uh, Integrity and patience and love and compassion and honor and dignity and fidelity and faithfulness and kindness and then there's the fruit of conduct your life changed from the inside now and your speech is different and your relationships and your habits and your work and your associations and your hobbies and the way you handle problems that arise and your marriage and and your children and your commitment to, to your job All that changes when you are married to Jesus Christ, when you are one with him. And there's the fruit of your witness then, your witness to the unconverted. Um, Your family, your children, your friends, the other mothers that wait at half past three outside the school for the children to be allowed out. Your fellow students at university or at school. Some may be saved. Because uh, they know you go to church. Why do you go to church? Why do you believe in God? And that's the fruit of your walk with Christ. Not your relationship with the law. And so, you know, your problem as students that uh, the 10,000 think that um, you want them to be more moral and... uh, not have sex and uh, not drink and not take drugs and uh, we, we're not negative like that we want them we want them to be joined to Jesus Christ to have this friend this savior this Lord we're offering him to them so you have died to what you once were when you become a Christian died to a sterile morality And the guilt, and then the pride. Guilt when you fell, and pride when you didn't. Your spiritual death, the old man that was under the law, he's died. You can't find him. He's he's no longer there in his old haunts with the other Pharisees. He's gone, he's buried, he's disappeared from sight. So you've been released from him. And all the burden of trying to live that kind of life is gone. It's over. You're serving God, but now you are serving him, verse 6, in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. There's a new inward energy that the Holy Spirit gives you. The old way was the way of the Lord. Do, 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 do. Don't, 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 don't. Work harder. Keep on trying. Push harder. That's all the law could say. And that's never worked, has it? Didn't work under the Old Testament. It doesn't work with Islam today. No one could ever do enough or work enough or push enough. 
Everyone married to the law was bound to failure. The written code guaranteed it. But the new way is God works from the inside. Not outside with a book, ten commandments, laws. But now inwardly he works by the Holy Spirit so that there's a new love for things that are pure and good and kind. Whatsoever things are true and righteous and just. Ah, you think on those things and you want to do those things. Because God has poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts and, and lives. And the new way is a delight in the law of God. And a new power to do the law of God. Our duty has become our delight. We serve God now out of gratitude. And with the energy that, that God gives us. And God renews it day by day. So, When now we hear the law of God, well, it sends us to Jesus Christ. When we read Matthew 5 or Romans 12 and we read the ethic, the law of God. Oh, we're so glad we've got a Savior who gives us mercy and, and, and forgiveness and peace. Christ sends us to the law in Matthew chapter 5. To be regulated. To find out how, how are we to live now then? Well, the law will say, Jesus explains the commandments, the sixth and the seventh and the eighth commandments, he tells us. We don't despise the good law of God. Because the law reflects the character of God. The nature of God. The, the personality of God. The glory of God's law is like the glory of um, a starry night, and the moon is shining. But that light vanishes. It's still shining there, but we can't see it because a brighter light has risen. And that's Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world, and that's risen. It's the gospel of the incarnate, suffering, risen, ascended Lord. And the other, the light of the law, is starlight. But the light of Jesus Christ is noonday brightness. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, although we know what's right and wrong, either we don't want to do what's right or stop doing what's wrong, or we want to do it, but we can't do it. And either way, we end up frustrated. But God has overcome that problem by sending his son as our head and our representative and husband. He keeps the law for us and he fulfills all righteousness for us. And then he writes his law in our hearts so that we have a desire to love him and love our neighbors. We've been freed from the manner of our obedience, but we haven't been freed from the matter of our obedience. It's still... Love God with all our heart and love your neighbor as yourself as the summary of, of the law. The quarrel is between law and grace as a way of salvation. That's, that's the quarrel. The law is a hammer to break us and then the gospel is God's oil to heal us. And law is needed. It's love's eyes. So it helps love to see aright. The law of God tells us. 
But love is needed as law's heartbeat. Law without love is like being married to a Pharisee. Love without law is like being married to a libertine. So if you want performance-based religion, well, you've got it in Islam. And that's what attracts these young people and sends them then off to Turkey and Syria and to join ISIS. You won't get a great religion in Islam. If you want a great marriage, then it can't be a performance-based marriage. It has to be based on love. And that love continues to do what the law alone could never do. It, it changes people. It changes us inwardly. It gives us new convictions and new values and new desires and new satisfactions and new peace. And we find that in Christ. Christ holds husband and wife together. Christ forgiving and giving grace. Christ teaching us about loving and giving us the power to love. Every commandment then is, has a promise built into it. It is saying, I can help you to do this. So we Christians do have a performance-based marriage, but the performer is Jesus Christ, and the performance was his. You know? The only perfect marriage that this world has seen was Adam and Eve before the fall. We've got a Savior who aids us and energizes us and motivates us. And he's so patient with us and so loving. So uh, this passage is saying, um, if you are trying to commend yourself to God by, by what you do, it's uh, going to end in failure. You've got to do what David Dixon did. He made a big pile of all his good works. And then he made a big pile of all his sins. And he set fire to them both. And he just abandoned them. And he went to Jesus. And he hid in Jesus. And that was his hope. Jesus Christ. Not his good works and not his sins. He just went from them all. This passage is saying... That if today you think you can commend yourself to God without my Savior, by, if you can commend yourself to God by your own goodness, by your law-keeping, well, Paul has some bad news for you. And I hope it will lead to some good news for you. The bad news is if you can perfectly keep the law of God, well done! That's fine. All you required is to do it absolutely perfectly. And uh, when you show up on Judgment Day and when you stand before God then, that you will present to him that you blamelessly kept his law. You've done everything God demands. You've done nothing that he's forbidden, everything that he desires. You've loved him with all your heart. You've loved your neighbor as you love yourself. The Apostle says, if you take that tack, there is no hope for you at all. You'll be condemned because you're under the law. 
as long as you live in this world and the next. But here's the good news then. There are people and uh, they've gone down that road. They've tried it. And they've seen that that's the way of persistent heartache and failure. It's a futile way to go. And by the grace of God, they've realized that they need to be saved. They need to be saved. They can't commend themselves to God by what they are and by what they've done. And what they've done is to say, I'm sorry. It's just hopeless. They've got no righteousness of my own. And they go to Jesus Christ. He's a cover for their sins. And they find freedom from the burden of the law through what the Savior has done. The one who died and rose from the dead. He wants to say, he's alive, you see. He's alive. The law is a book. The law is tablets of stone. The law is a principle. But here is a living person. He's with us tonight. He's given me these words to say to you tonight. He's brought you here tonight. And he's offering himself to be your husband. Forever. And to help you. To live the life that you can live by his grace. His grace is omnipotence acting to redeem and sanctify you. And make you one of his children. Lord bless your word to us tonight then. And do us good by it. Strengthen us by it, we pray. Almighty God, oh, help us. Help us day by day to live for thee. Thank you. Thank you for being so wonderful, a lover and a husband and a friend to us. Oh, that we just treasured you far more than we do. And help us to spend the rest of our lives then working with you, yoked to you, that easy yoke, that light burden, And living as we should live in preparation for a new heavens and a new earth. And all the wonder of eternity that lies before us. Give us that purpose and that strength. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.